Good morning to you. The American Bible Society tells us that 88% of Americans own a Bible. The average American home owns four Bibles. But how well do you know the God of the Bible? For the next couple Sundays, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9 and Nehemiah 10. And from these 77 verses, we're going to explore three towering truths. Truths about God, truths about us, and the truth needed to transform us into a people pleasing unto God. With this in mind, if you would turn with me in the Word of God to Nehemiah chapter 9. And it should be on page 511 of the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, please feel free to use one of ours. 511, Nehemiah chapter 9. As you turn in the word of the Lord to Nehemiah 9, let's turn to the Lord of that word in prayer. Lord Jesus, we invite you today to speak to us as a lion. You are the lion of the tribe of Judah. We ask that you would roar through scripture today, that we would see glimpses of your majesty, your power, your goodness, your greatness, your graciousness, that that would wash over us in a new, fresh, and powerful way. Lord, we're mindful of the words of Spurgeon who says that a lion doesn't need to be defended, it just needs to be let out of the cage. And so we pray that today through uh, the reading of Scripture and the explaining of Scripture that, that the roar of Scripture would wash over us and we would be awed by it and we would be all the more in love with you because of it. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to read the first five verses of Nehemiah 9, because then we're going to really be dissecting the prayer that starts in verse 6, and we'll be reading a lot of verses later in the sermon. So let's start with the first five verses. Now on the 24th day of this month, now it's been a little break because we've had Christmas, but if you remember, we were in Nehemiah 8, and it was two days prior in the previous chapter. So two days have passed. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled when fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. So two days ago they were feasting at the Feast of Tabernacle. Now they're fasting. Two days ago it was a celebration. Now it is a time of confession. You've got to make that transition in the month we missed with Christmas. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it they made confession and they worshipped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua and Bani and a whole bunch of hard to pronounce Hebrew names. And then there were more hard Hebrew names. The Levites... And they said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And they're going to go on and go through the longest prayer in all the Bible. In God's providence, Ezra 9, Daniel 9, and our text today, Nehemiah 9, are the three great national prayers of Israel. They are three Prayers of repentance begging God for forgiveness. Now, Nehemiah 9 is the longest prayer in all the Bible. And Nehemiah 9's prayer has a context, and that is Nehemiah 8. 
The context of Nehemiah 8 is that God's people were celebrating the festival of tabernacles, the feast of tabernacles. And in so doing, they had read the law. And the law cut them to the heart. The the Spirit of God used the Word of God to show the people of God how far they had strayed in their day. And so without any prompting back in Nehemiah 8, God's people started mourning. But God had appointed the Feast of Tabernacles to be a time of celebration, not self-flagellation. And so God's priests urged God's people to follow God's Word. And so they feasted instead of fasted. But now the feast was over. It ended on the 22nd. The Bible tells us it's now the 24th. But they could not forget what they heard in the Word of the Lord. And so after a a one-day intermission, as a time of mental transition, they rightly shifted in their mission, and their feasting turned to fasting. That's where we go to our text today, Nehemiah 9, beginning at verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth, a sign of great contrition, with earth on their heads, again showing their contrition. And the Israelites, they separated themselves from all the foreigners, again showing how that they were a holy people, and they began to confess their sins. Not other people's sins, their sins. And the iniquities of their fathers, where they came from, and who raised them, and where they went astray. And then they stood up in the place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. It's going to make any sermon you have to sit through with me short by comparison. Just want to draw that little attention there. And they stood in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter, they made confession and they worshipped the Lord their God. Now almost 500 years before the apostle or the, 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 the writer James wrote his epistle, the same Holy Spirit that moved James's pen in the New Testament moved God's people in the old, in Nehemiah 9. Because God's people in Nehemiah 9, they did the same thing that James says. In the book of James, it says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded and the people in Nehemiah 9, they did what James said before he ever wrote it. They, they, they made themselves wretched and they mourned and they wept and they let their laughter be turned to mourning and their joy to gloom. They sought to humble themselves before the Lord. And He heard. The same path to holiness for God's people is the same for us today. And the path to holiness starts with repentance. The path to holiness starts with repentance. I want you to notice the prayer of Nehemiah 9 really gets underway in verse 6. And the first thing it starts talking about is God. You've got to have an understanding of who God is if you're going to connect with the God who is. In Nehemiah 9.6, he begins with God. Biblical prayer is always grounded in the biblical God. It's not grounded in the God of our imaginations. It's not grounded in the God of our tradition. Biblical prayer is always grounded in the God who is, 
who was, and for whoevermore will be. And that God is accurately revealed in Scripture. And so once we begin to understand from Scripture who God is, you're going to see over and over, New Testament, Old Testament, you're going to see when people get an understanding of who God really is, we're moved to contrition. We're moved to confession. And we'll be moved to a conviction, to renewed consecration. But the order matters. Because the order is the difference between man's religion and God's truth. Man's religion or God's truth. You see, in religion, what do we try to do? We try to earn God's affection by our devotion. We we try to barter for God's favor through attempts at sacrifice or efforts to be nice. We try to be good little boys and girls so God will love us more. In religion, even our confession becomes a crass religious transaction. We think, you know what? If I confess, then God, He has to bless. But but Scripture says it's the other way around. We've got all of our thinking backwards. Religion versus worship. Man's religion versus God's truth. Romans 2.4 says this. I think we have a slide for that. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Do you hear that, church? It's not because you're frightened. It's because of God's kindness that ought to lead you to repentance. If your only understanding of God is harsh and, 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 and an ogre and a cosmic killjoy, it's going to be really hard to repent and walk with God. You're going to want to avoid God. But the Scriptures say God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It says it again. Romans 12 says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. God's kindness and God's mercy ought to motivate us unto repentance. It is not our repentance that makes God love us. Jesus died on the cross before or after you repented before. 1 John 4.19 is clear. We love because He first loved us. Which is easier to confess to? The meanest teacher you ever had or grandma with cookies and a smile? How do you view your God, Christian? In view of God's mercy, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Don't misunderstand the command of Jesus in John 14, 15. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. You know what he doesn't say? Because the way some people hear this, they hear it like this. Jesus does not say, in order for God to love you, obey my commandments. He says, if you love me, then obey me. Not in order for me to love you. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our obedience to Jesus does not somehow make Jesus love us more. He could never love you more than when He died for you. And it was while you were still at war with Him. While we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And so... Our outward obedience is merely 
an overflow of the love we have for God that started with God's love for us. And so love ought to be the basis of our service to Jesus. Paul tells us worship comes from a cheerful giver. Peter says that that worship is from a willing worker. There can be no true worship from a moribund, duty-bound, religious ritualizer going through the motions to make a God happy. Biblically, love always starts with God and comes to us. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrates His own love for us towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is what we see in Nehemiah 9. After four hours of Scripture saturation, God's people were moved to confession, to contrition, to a strong conviction to love God with renewed consecration by following His commandments better. The more they heard about the goodness of God in Scripture, His faithfulness in the face of our unfaithfulness, the more they were moved to love God by confession and renewed consecration. So, They were repenting not to earn God's love. They were repenting because of God's love. Starting in verse 6, we get into the heart of the longest prayer in all the Bible. And that prayer starts with a proper understanding of God. That's our main point today. That's the one thing we want to get across today. We're going to look at that in some different ways. We need a proper understanding of God. We need a proper understanding of God. The first thing we must understand, and it's right here in the prayer, is we must understand God's greatness. How great is our God? Well, first off, He alone is God, and there is no other. God has no competitor. God has no rival, and no one can bring about His removal. Look again at verse 6. The prayer begins, You are the Lord, and you... What's the next word? Alone. You alone are God. You see, God is not just unrivaled. God is also unparalleled. God alone is our maker. And God alone is our preserver. And in the prayer it says, You made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts and the earth and all that's in it and the seas and all that's in them and You preserve them. He is our maker And He is our preserver. God is so great, my friends, that that angelic beings, and the Scriptures say that they're made on a higher created order than man. Man is made a little lower than the angels. And what happens when, when man finds an angel? Usually what happens is the angel shows up and the person freaks out and drops down and starts worshiping and the angel has to say, hey, get up. We don't worship me. We worship God. Who do the angels worship? Well, again, in the prayer, it's very clear. The angels who, when we see them, we would be tempted to worship them. They never worship each other. They only worship God alone. The the, the prayer says, You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, that is the angels in this earth and all that's in it and the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Friends, if we could see what the angels see, We would be so awed by God that we would worship Him with a a frequency and a fervency and an intensity that we can't even begin to fathom. 
And the good news is, one day we will. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ in this life, we will see God with unveiled faces. For now we see through a glass as darkly, but one day we will see Him face to face. Now, if all we knew about God was His greatness, we would have every reason to revel and marvel and worship forever just at His greatness. But we need to understand not only God's greatness, but you need to understand God's goodness. Because, you know, there are very powerful things like earthquakes and tsunamis, but they're fearful things and destructive things. And it isn't just God's greatness. He's more powerful than the most powerful thing you can conjure in your imagination. But His greatness is, is equally matched by His goodness. Do you know this? B, we must understand God's goodness. We must understand God's goodness. God in His goodness sovereignly selected, eternally elected a man named Abraham. And it's in the prayer in verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And you gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you kept your promise, for you are righteous. God in his goodness selected who? He selected Abram, the idolater. Abram, whose name has in its connection uh, the worship of the moon god. Abram was a pagan. He was a sinner. He didn't understand who God was, so God had to reveal himself to Abram. God brought Abram out of his paganism and invited him into a personal relationship with the living God. God changed his life. And so God changed his name from Abram, the moon worshiper, to Abraham, the father of many. God made everlasting promises to Abraham, promises of land, promises of a nation, promises of Messiah. You can find them in, in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, and they're repeated to all of the patriarchs, and they have either been fulfilled in Christ or they await fulfillment in Christ, but they will all be fulfilled. God has kept and God will keep all of his precious promises because the scriptures are right in this prayer. He is a promise-keeping God. Amen? Now, if God was great, but he was not good, we would be in a world of trouble, wouldn't we? Imagine for a moment if the most powerful being was also the most indifferent being. Imagine if God could care less for all of his creation. That would mean that our plight and our prayers would go perpetually, utterly unanswered. But that is not the case, is it? Imagine if the most powerful being was also the most wicked being. Where would we go to escape his infernal gaze? But friends, God's greatness is matched by his goodness. God is not just great, He is good. He, he sees our affliction, and He's moved with compassion to godly action. That's His reaction. 
He sees our affliction, and He's moved with compassion to take godly action. Praise God. Look at verse 9. You're going to see this very clearly. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry in the Red Sea, and you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, O God, as it is to this day, and you divided the sea before them so that they that went through the midst of the sea and on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. You see, friends, God is not just powerful but stoic. God is powerful and heroic. Do you know Him? God saw our affliction, and He was moved with compassion, and He took godly action. God moved to bring us redemption. He didn't have to. He chose to. Because not only is He fully great, but He's fully good. God took out all those formidable foes. God easily overpowered the mighty Pharaoh, and He took out in an instant the most powerful military of that century. In a moment, the wheels came off Pharaoh's plan, and the power of God washed away the weapons of man. God released His captives through a series of signs and wonders that, that, that were meant to help even the Egyptians see there was only one God Almighty and it's none of theirs. Each plague was a frontal assault to the Egyptian false deities. Uh, their supposed God King could not stop the angel of death from taking his own firstborn's life, but the blood of the Lamb could. Did you hear that? The blood of the Lamb could. The blood of the Lamb personally applied over your heart and hearth and house. It was the only solution to the pollution and the sad situation our sin led us in. Friends, God's goodness makes a way when there's no other way. We worship the God who sees our pain. Verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. We worship the God who hears our cries, verse 9. He heard their cry at the Red Sea. We worship the God who can do the impossible, verse 10, performing signs and wonders against Pharaoh. We worship the God who opposes the proud. Look at verse 10 again. God performed those signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of the land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the... Therefore, humble yourselves before the grace of God. We worship a God of great fame. Look at the end of verse 10. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You see, in that day, God rescued His people from Pharaoh. And to this day, His fame, the fame of His name, is praised in every inhabited continent, isn't it? Think for a second of the unique fame of the Lord our God. Uh, from remote jungles, 
among illiterate tribal peoples. Right now, this Sunday, folks sing praises to Jesus on simple instruments made from hollowed-out gourds with dried-out beans, and they shake it in praise to Jesus. All the way from, from remote jungles to, to believers who gather at InterVarsity at Harvard University. Asians, Africans, Americans, Italians, Irish, Indians, Norwegians, and even Swedes. Worship the one true God. From, from paupers to princes, men and women, slave and free, from mighty Olympians to the frail and bedridden, from elderly saints eagerly waiting to see Jesus face to face to, to tiny tots who have trusted Him with childlike faith. Friends, God has made a name for Himself, hasn't He? Because there is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved, we worship the God who rescues the helpless. We worship the God who offers hope to the hopeless. Look at verse 11. You divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. They were stuck between a red sea and a Pharaoh seeing red and they had no way out. And then God rescue. We worship the God who leads us and who guides us. Look at verse 12. By pillar of cloud you led them in the day. And by pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. We worship the God who does not stand aloof and away, but who personally visits and who lovingly speaks to us. Look at verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven. We worship the God whose law is law, whose decrees are always right and whose statutes are always true. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and you gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. We worship the God who has every right to establish the rhythms of our life. Think about that for a second. We worship a God who has every right to establish the rhythms of our life. He has every right to establish the boundaries of our existence. You will be born then, and you will die then. And you will be in these places in between. The Scripture says that it's in God that we live and move and have our very being. That's God's job, not ours. We worship the God who raises up servants and guides us into His service. Listen again to the end of verse 14. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath by Moses, your servant. He gives us those that help us, guide us to worship Jesus. We worship the God who provides and who sustains. When there seems to be no way, when there's not enough oil or flour in the jar. Listen to verse 15 again. You, you gave them bread from heaven, not from calandras, which is very tasty and break fresh hourly. But this bread was from heaven, and it was for their hunger, and he brought forth water. How? Out of the stream? No, out of the rock. 
for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. In the desert, God can give us dessert. Where there is no bread, He can make it rain bread. It's called manna. Because He is the bread of life. Amen. God sends the rain. And if need be, God can make water come from a rock because He is our rock and He possesses streams of living water. God is amazing. God is glorious. God is great. God is good. This is our God. Do you know Him? Not do you know about Him. I mean, do you know Him personally? Have you given your life to Him entirely? Have you trusted in Him eternally? Not head knowledge. Heart possession. Have you put your faith in Jesus? This is our God. Do you know Him? God is great. Definitionally, God is the only maximally great being that exists. That's what God is. He's a maximally great being. A maximally great being. He's the only maximally great being that ever existed and ever will exist. He is God and there is no other. God is good. If God was all-powerful, but altogether awful, we would be in a world of hurt. But friends, the God who is maximally great is also a God who is maximally good. Do you know this? Jesus understood this. Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. And friends, God is good without measure. He sent His Son without reservation for our redemption, and He sends His Spirit without measure upon those to whom which He treasures. He promises this to all Christians in the New Testament. The only question is, are you His child today? Have you asked Him to adopt you permanently and irrevocably into His family? Romans 11.29 says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So have you taken up His offer of the gift and calling of God in Christ? This brings us to our last point today. We've seen God's greatness We've observed God's goodness. But you need to understand God's graciousness. This is point C, you see. We must understand God's graciousness. How did God's people handle God's greatness and God's goodness? Well, tragically, too often with thoughtlessness and indifference. Can you relate? Too often with willful, spiteful rebellion. Can you relate? Too often with defiant intransigence and foolish waywardness. Can you relate? This is why the Bible encourages us to repent. Can you relate? I can. Listen to verses 16 to 31. And see... If you can spot the vast difference between God and us. Between God's actions and our actions. Here it is. But they and our fathers 
acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. But you are a great God, ready to forgive, a gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, well, this is our God who brought me out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. Verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Verse 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Verse 22, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and a lot of them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you have told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in, and they possessed the land, and you subdued it before them. The inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, you gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And, and they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and they took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns that were already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. Somebody else planted. The wicked planted. And God's people reaped and ate of the labor of the other. So they ate. And they were filled. And they became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And I wish that's where it ended. But the Bible tells the truth. And in the midst of the great blessing and the great rescue and the great provision, verse 26, this is why we need to learn to repent as a people. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and they cast your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets. We don't want to hear it who warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. I wish it stopped there. But it doesn't. Verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. And yet, when they turned and they repented and they cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies, not according to their worth, according to God's mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. And yet they acted presumptuously, and they did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and they would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. 
Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, because why? You are a gracious and merciful God. Friends, God's greatness is seen in His uniqueness. His greatness is seen in His holiness. His greatness is seen in His unparalleled power that can speak the universe from nothing into everything in an instant. He's God, and He's maximally great. God's goodness is seen in His treatment of us. His provision, His protection, His preservation, even when we ignore or sometimes abhor Him. He sends rain on the just and the, and the unjust. How good He is! But friends, it is God's graciousness that we must understand if we are to be saved. Turn with me to one final Scripture in our time together. Turn with me to the New Testament leaving Nehemiah, going to the right in the Bible to Ephesians 2. It's on page 1242 of the Blue Pew Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, page 1242. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, our salvation is by grace, not by merit, and our salvation's in Christ, not in us. So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us. Though we are sinners, though we are wayward, though we are rebellious, God will adopt you and make you His own. Verse 8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Salvation is all of God, it's His grace, but you have to receive it by faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. Now, in Luke chapter 9, we're told of a situation where, where someone wanted to follow Jesus, but first he wanted to bank his parents' inheritance. And Jesus said something startling. Jesus instead said, let the dead bury their dead. Meaning, why don't you let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead? And you who are spiritually alive, you see that I'm the Christ, you just follow me. Follow me right now, today. Not some future day when it's more convenient and you've gotten around to it. Those are the words of Jesus in Luke 9. Let the dead bury their dead. You know, the Bible says today, is the day of salvation. And the devil says, tomorrow. 
Deal with it later. When you're done having your fun, come to Jesus. Friends, there is no fun without Jesus. There's just pleasure and sin for a season, but in the end, it brings death. That is the lie of the devil. That is the lure of the devil. And you have to ask yourself, is my theology based on Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, or Satan, the father of lies, who says, you know, when you scoop hot coals on your lap, it won't burn you. Everyone else will get burned, but not you. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The devil's telling you to put that decision off. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You may have heard the gospel a thousand times, but if you haven't accepted it once, then today is the day he wants you to change that. It's a new year. Will you make a new start with new life in Christ? We come to new life through the author of life. We cannot earn our way to God through religion, through giving, through being naughty or nice, we come through Christ. Romans 6.23 declares, the wages of sin is death. You want to earn something? You're going to earn separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus alone is able to atone. The relationship with the holy God that sin disabled in Genesis 3, the sinless life and atoning death of Christ has enabled you can have peace with God through Jesus. Only Jesus can secure your eternal redemption. Jesus in the garden prayed, and he prayed this, if there's another way, let this cup pass. But there was no other way. So he went to the cross. Friends, there is no other way. And so Jesus, in love, after sweating great drops of blood, He prayed, not my will, but Thy will be done. And He went to the cross for the joy set before Him because of Your redemption. The joy of making sinners into sons and daughters. Would you be free from the power of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Galatians 4.4 is clear. God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights as sons. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us Christ died for sins once and for all. The, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you and I to God. Romans 10.9 is clear. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. You will be saved. You will be saved. Have you done that? Do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe God raised Jesus from the dead, proving His power over sin and death and hell itself? Then have you asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life? If not, why not? 
And if not now, when? If you're ready today, Jesus will adopt you today. With every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here today and you get it, the pennies drop, the scales have fallen from your eyes, you understand God's goodness and you understand God's greatness, but you now really understand God's graciousness and you want to be under the grace of God. You no longer want to be under the wrath of God that your sin has brought you. You want to be under the grace of God that the Son has brought you. If that's what you want in your heart, if you say, if you believe that Jesus is God and that Jesus overcame sin and death by resurrecting on that third day on a hill far away called Calvary, then Lord, if you're here today and you say, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life, I want you to pray with me. It's not a magical incantation. It's the sincere desire of your heart of you asking the Father to redeem you forever. Your prayer can be expressed like this. Feel free to pray in the quietness of your heart if you mean it. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And I need a Savior, and I know there is no other than your Son, Jesus. So in faith, I ask you to adopt me into your family. I ask that you give me the courage to live for you and your glory. I invite you to be the Lord of my life, both now and forever. So help me, Jesus. Amen. You prayed that.